I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We are a new show breaking down the anime news, views, and shows you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. Yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend (laughs) that I don't right now. Hold it in. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. (laughs) Tune in every week for the latest anime updates and possibly a few debates. Oof. I remember, what was that? (laughs) Say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. You can listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. It was so embarrassing and such a disaster and such a waste of money and I cannot believe that no one's heads rolled. Why did they think this was a good idea? And the truth of that is the good idea was way behind the hill somewhere and it was beaten with a stick until it became the bloodied corpse that you see before you now. There are people who actually came out of it really devastated and scarred by the whole thing. Then suddenly it was just this whole other level of shit I had to deal with. Like, like I got punched in the back of the head at St. Luke's Shopping Mall one day. I got jumped by a group of kids at um, the gas station. And even the dude's mother was, like, trying to get a kick in. We should have all walked away. <laughs> I think I have blacked it out. I had to for survival. Hi, I'm Jeff Houtman, and I'm responsible for all that trauma you're hearing about. I didn't set out to cause it. In fact, I tried really hard to avoid it. But I failed. And we all fail sometimes. Every day, everyone fails in some little way. Small, personal failures. But once upon a time, I failed in a big way. A massive way. A massive, embarrassing, public failure. And my failure was a sitcom. It is legendarily the worst comedy ever made. It's like the Nadir, like it's the bottom bar upon which everything in New Zealand is judged as being the worst. You couldn't have asked for more things to be wrong or more decisions to be made poorly than were made on that show. The high hopes of episode one, the dwindling hopes of episode two, the oh dear we've gone aground for episode three and then all we're on a desert island from that point onwards. I just remember the big stuff, like thinking, maybe I'll never act again. It's not a case of, well, that's that's half an hour, I won't get back again. It's that's half an hour, I seriously contemplated suicide. They're just bad shows. I certainly never wanted to write in television ever again as long as I live forever and forever. Amen. (laughs) It's like we're looking at the bones of it, or not even the bones. We're looking at the way the body decayed and what animals tried to eat it and trying to remember from that what it was. I think we're all a little scarred and we're all going to remember it a little bit differently. Okay, I'm going to tell you a story. A confession of sorts. But it's not true crime. It's something far worse. It was the worst experience of my career. Such a failure that it became known as the worst sitcom ever made. Go check Wikipedia, that'll tell you. So why am I doing this podcast? Why am I revisiting the terror? Well, recently I've undergone a huge life change. I've moved from Auckland to New Zealand's capital, Wellington, after struggling for 25 years to make it as an actor. Because the sad truth is, 
that sitcom was actually the most success I've ever had. I was part of a show that was actually put on television for the country to see. And then it failed. Spectacularly. I kept trying to write, but my name was tarred. I tried to act, but I never really got any roles. My last great role was in 2015 when I voiced a snail called Bruno in an animated short film. He ended up being killed off in a microwave. Sanctuary. Claude, in here. This place is perfect. Claude, can, can you hear me? It's, it's getting hot in here, Claude. My whole body is being turned into... I did that job for free. So I moved to Wellington. And as part of the move, I had to bring everything I owned with me. Everything that had been sitting for years in a storage locker. I got a truck to unpack the locker and bring it all down. And that was when it showed up. My filing cabinet. Filled with documents from a time I'd tried very hard to forget. Okay, so this is, if you picture an old blue filing cabinet. It's three drawers. It's beaten up. It's locked. All right. The key's working. No, that's about dinosaurs. What have we got? Now this manila folder, it's just like a standard boring manila folder. And in old felt pen it says on it, The Unfortunate Experiment 2. And those files from that folder got me thinking. All my failures throughout my whole life came back to that project. It all started with that stupid sitcom, and I'd never really got over it. And then, in amongst the random pieces of paper, it's like an 8x10 publicity photo, and it's a bunch of smiling, laughing, looking confused people. There's a lot of plaid in it as well. Maybe plaid was a thing. That photo, showing all of the cast and crew smiling and not knowing any better, got me thinking. How did we make such a bad sitcom? We didn't set out to make a failure, so how did it happen? And how had it affected all of those people since? I mean, had they continued to fail like I had, or had they managed to move on? And most importantly, was it my fault? Sifting through these bleak remains, I hope to understand what we all experience and all fear. Failure. Because while this podcast is about me reconnecting with all my friends and colleagues from that time, it's also about me trying to understand exactly why things fail. Not just TV shows, but all kinds of things. What is the nature of failure, and can we avoid it? So I suppose at least something good can finally come from my torture all those years ago. I'm going to take us through the whole process, right from the beginning, which was 1993, when TV3 and producers Ross Jennings and Ali Duffy held a seminar in a big, run-down, dusty conference centre in Auckland, hoping to teach budding young writers how to make a hit sitcom. Let's start with one of the eventual writers on the show, Dave Horn. The whole Situation Comedy Workshop started in, I think it was November of 1993. Ross Jennings, uh, the king of the producers in TV3 at the time, pulled together the show and said, well, we need a Situation Comedy, don't have any writers for it, let's get them trained up on how writing Situation Comedies work. The first thing I remember... This is Jack Tweedy, who was an up-and-coming comic at the time. There was actually an ad in the paper. Really? Yeah. It was a TV3 insignia saying that they were doing 
a week-long seminar, and at the end of the week, they would be choosing people to write um, a new sitcom. And yeah. there would be jobs at the end of it. Well, I was homeschooling the kids, writing a bit of poetry. This is my eventual writing partner, Mihira Patterson. Saw the ad, and that was it, really. It just sounded like fun. Felt I needed a bit more fun in my life. I think the cost of it was $500. What? Did we pay to go on that? Yes. No way. Yes. Really? Yeah. Well, first of all, there was a selection process even to get in. Really? Yeah. And then um, you had to pay $500 or $1,000. No. You, if, you, if you can't remember how much it was or that you had to pay, it was probably $500 because I think you'd remember a grand. What a rip. They didn't give us lunch or anything, did they? Yeah. Oh, OK. Maybe it was for the lunch. <laughs> so I look at the price. This is Deb Wilton on the phone from Canada who was eventually given the made-up role of table historian. It was something like $350. It was something way out of mind. Oh, my God. That's like a month's rent in those days. Yeah, it was, <laughs> that's a, it was a year's groceries, young man. <laughs> <laughs> I'd been having some family troubles, and I wasn't succeeding at school academically. This is Matthew Donaldson, who was 16 and still at school when he first heard about the writing seminar. I really loved creative writing. My mother saw that this was an interest and she saw that I wasn't going to get university entrance and she said, go for this. And the teachers who could see that I was uh, struggling said, we're going to sponsor you. That's awesome. Yeah. Found out the who, what, why, when, how. This is Kate Ward-Smythe. Paid my money, I think, at the door and crammed into some old building and I want to say Newmarket mm -hmm. with 120 Kiwis. So all of us struggling writers scrambled to get the money to attend, including Deb Wilton, who had a particularly innovative way of getting into the workshop. I didn't know what I was going to do. I really wanted to attend. I didn't have the money. So I thought, you know, I believe that people in television like a bit of hustle. So I'm sure I could come up with some hustle. So I looked around. The only thing of value I owned at that point in time was a Honda scooter, a 50cc Honda scooter, which honestly was like riding a sewing machine around Auckland. Like you couldn't, you couldn't go up a hill without getting <laughs> off it and having to push it up. So I putted along to where Ross Jennings had his office at that point in time and came in and said, I've heard you're running this comedy writing workshop. I really want to go. I don't have any money, but I'll sell you my scooter. <laughs> if... <laughs> I'll give you my scooter if you let me go to the workshop. <laughs> they didn't, at this point, if they'd seen the scooter, they just would have said no. <laughs> but at this point, they, I think, admired my gumption. And Ross said, you know what, I'm going to let you attend for free, and you don't have to give me the scooter. Uh, but I would love to use your skills after the seminar um, in some way. And so our deal is just that you will work for free <laughs> for me for a period of time. So I said, yes, great. So I went along to the seminar, which was inspiring. So in a big conference hall in Newmarket, Auckland, we all assembled. And the venue did a pretty good job at representing the budding comedy writers in New Zealand at that time. It definitely felt kind of low rent and desperate in terms of the general atmosphere. I remember it was intense. I remember there was no air conditioning. I remember there wasn't a lot of room. 
I just remember it being one great big room and everyone sitting in rows with pens and paper and hanging on every word from the TV3 executive, who I believe was Jeff Stephen, was that right? So Jeff basically said, hey guys, we want to write a New Zealand sitcom. New Zealand has not been able to nail the sitcom and we've brought over this guru called John Vorhouse and he is amazing and he's come all the way from the States, isn't that exciting? And he's going to whittle you 120 people down to 20 lucky people who will work with us and workshop uh, until we come up with an amazing sitcom for New Zealand. The first week was really good, and the seminar was amazing. I was thrilled to not be at school. (laughs) (laughs) And and even if... I don't get selected. I wasn't thinking I would be selected, but I was like, I'm going to work, 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 work. I think just attending this was a huge thing for me. I thought, this is a career path. This is something that I am willing to throw all heaven and earth to do and pursue and chase. And I think it was about four days into the five-day workshop that I think Ellie Duffy came up to me and she said, so Dave, how do you think of going? And, yeah, yeah, it's good. Going, you know, 18 hour days. And I was just sort of, what? <laughs> you know, when you're committed to this kind of project you know, and everybody's working hard for it, you think, yeah, this is, this is a great environment. This is the kind of uh, boiling pot comedy newsroom environment, if you like, that I would expect to generate really great stuff. And uh, she reminded me that there were going to be, you know, cuts coming up and, and there's going to be a small group that will be going on to writing comedy, and she was essentially testing out the waters, seeing if I would say. And I remember my response fairly clearly. I said, yes, I'd be completely interested. The prize is too great. Because it was. The opportunity to write a successful New Zealand situation comedy was just huge, massive. Uh, You know, there's just no way I can get my head around it. I think of it like a cult. Everybody was so keen and so hungry. Everybody wanted the gig. And the... (sighs) The competition from it was was so hard. People had come up from Dunedin, not sleeping. Everybody was desperate for the gig and soaking up all the information that we could get and desperately trying to get it. Over the first week, we worked really hard. It was a crash course in sitcom creation. But there was more to the seminar than just learning. There was competition too. And at the end of the first week... They did the first cull, which took it down to 20. Jack Tweedy again. And I remember they said they were going to call at 4 o'clock on Saturday afternoon. And I remember I was living in a house in in Upper Queen Street that isn't there anymore, a little old house, sitting next to the the flat phone, waiting to see if it would ring. And at one minute past four it rang, and I thought, they're either ringing to tell me no or ringing to tell me yes. And and I picked it up, and, and they said, you're in. And I was the first one that they called, I think. Oh, teacher's pet. Well, yeah. Matthew Donaldson. I got a, a call on my birthday saying... On your 17th birthday. On my 17th birthday. <laughs> saying, hey, welcome to the club. We want to take a bet on you. And I jumped up and down and couldn't stop smiling, and I hugged my mum, and she said, I'll do whatever it takes to help you, help you get where you go. Luckily... Or maybe unluckily, I made it through the first cull, and so did my future writing partner, Mihira. And really, to my surprise, got invited to come for the um, more in-depth course, and that whittled down the numbers down a bit more, yeah. In a Jonestown kind of way of thinking, it was the point where people were going, 
Well, I worked 14 hours in the garden. How many hours did you work? And, well, I worked 16 hours in the garden. Well, I haven't slept for three weeks, so I must really want the new future to be coming kind yes. of thing. So well, we're already at that stage two weeks in. Bodies all lined up on the ground sort of thing. Yeah. We were put together as a writing team because... Why? Did we annoy someone? <laughs> I had a feeling that we were like the bad kids and they chucked us together. Does that sound right? I think it might have been because we were the craziest. Okay, that could have been it. That could have been it. That could have yeah. been it. Right, we were the problem children. You <laughs> glue us together and that way you can kick us both out at once, right? <laughs> but that didn't happen. No, that didn't happen. It all sounds so lovely at this point. I don't know how. What it all got on? so tragic. <laughs> And 20 people were whittled down to 20 people and they're going keep coming up with a premise keep coming up with the characters do the outlines then I was paired up with the youngest guy who was involved um, and I can't even remember his name I, I want to say maybe it was another Jeff or maybe it was a what if a, I said Matt oh Matt little wee Matt and like he was like 17 or 18 years 17. old after the massacre that was week two we were finally down to our core writing group the group that would eventually go on to staff the chosen sitcom. And it was now our job to come up with the incredible idea that would become the great New Zealand sitcom. I came up with an idea of what if an older sister was left in charge of a family because mum and dad had gone overseas to find themselves under a rock. Kate Ward-Smythe. So I came up with that because... Growing up in Nelson, Mum and Dad did get very involved in counterculture, like the Values Party. They had a lot of things that they were focusing on, very worthy causes. And it was a great, just totally immersive environment to grow up in. That's how the premise came about for me. It was, I often felt like I'd sort of raised myself and, and, and was my own adult um, growing up, so that was the kernel of the idea. But Kate's writing partner, the 17-year-old Matt, remembers things a little differently. There are contrary points of view as to the origins of of this, but uh, from from my perspective, it was uh, based on an idea that I had, mm -hmm. um, but we worked together and developed yep. together. And what was the idea? Uh, the idea was that there was a, a boy... Um, maybe about sixteen or seventeen, hmm. who <laughs> handy, yeah, whose uh, whose mother had to be absent, and the older sister who had just moved out of home, the task fell to her to look after her her younger brother, mm -hmm. and um, yeah, that happened in my life. And it was this idea of Kate and Matt's that's the reason I'm here today, doing this podcast, sifting through the ashes. It was their kernel of an idea that would go on to become the worst sitcom ever made. And we named it Melody Rules. I'm in charge here. For the next five and three quarter hours, Melody Rules. Break out the swimsuit. Bay of Islands, here I come. With you and Fiona in swimsuits, don't you mean the Bay of Pigs? Sorry. Uh, Susan Hamilton kept throwing bits of paper at me. <laughs> we all know what that means. She thought you were a rubbish bin. <laughs> Great, then we can go upstairs and practice our abseiling. Monster! You decent? Speaking of horror stories... The training, 
the whole development process and the kind of reality show stripping out of different casts and people as, as the group got smaller and smaller. The training was spot on. Dave Horn. It is flawless. It really is. Like teaching the elements of character design, script design, story arc, how it works with network programming. Um, it really is sitcom training that is that is valuable and portable to different types of media. So, you know, the questions that have to be asked is, okay, if the training was fantastic, what the fuck happened? Yeah. But we're all so willing. It was like you know, no one was questioning the very core of the process and how wrong and clinical the process was and how much it was a bad fit with us as a nation, as a culture. There wasn't any way to counter the way it was going because there was a cull coming up. You know what I mean? There was a, yeah. It gets chopped from 20 to 16 to 12 to 10. And it's like a, a reality show before there were reality shows. Yeah. As I said before, you're jumping through the hoops. Yeah, yeah. And if you can make it through the hoop, you're yeah. just looking forward to that next hoop. Yeah. And exactly. And we were like a whole lot of kids with our faces pressed up against the sweet shop. We were on the outside and we wanted to get in. We wanted a career. We wanted to make a difference. Magic Tallyland. Magic Tallyland. Even this early on in the process, there was a dichotomy. Because Dave Horn is right. The training was excellent. We all learned so much. But, like Kate said, everything we learned was about writing an American sitcom. We all know that if you want to succeed, you have to train. Practice makes perfect, right? But what if all of your training, all of that practice, doesn't fit the end goal? You can play tennis every day of your life, but that's not going to make you a world champion at squash. So, is this where our failure started? Were we just training for the wrong game? Regardless, I really loved this seminar. It really did feel like something was happening. We were excited and giddy. It was like there was something in the water. And actually, well, there was something in the water. We found out a few weeks after that we'd been through this two-week seminar that the water in, this, in the place was tainted with giardia. And about a third of the people who were there, so that was like a hundred or so people, came down with Giardia. Giardia. <laughs> Everybody's taking toilet breaks, and I was like, what is happening? Because I, I saw that mould growing on the inside of that water cooler, and I was like, I'm not drinking from that. <laughs> and... I, you know, I'm not. I'm a kid. I'm not going to tell adults what they can and can't consume. <laughs> I don't know. Awesome. If it, I don't know if it was subconscious or not. But I wanted the spot. I came down with Giardia Plus. I went to the White Cross in Ponsonby Road yeah. to get diagnosed, and I remember this white-faced young doctor walking towards me. And the first thing he said to me was, "Have you been overseas recently?" And I said, "No, I haven't been overseas. I've been to Newmarket and back." And he said. I, there's so many different things in your stool. I can't tell you, you know. I, there's so many things living in your gut. I don't know their names. You know, you ha you're very, very ill. And the truth is it took about 15 years to f really get that Giardia out of my system. Of system. The Giardia lasted longer than my stand-up career. And that lasted wow. a, a decade. All I remember is we were told off because we were doing nothing but drinking coffee from the machine and smoking cigarettes in the car parks, and we got told how unhealthy we were. <laughs> it was like Changi. 
How was that? <laughs> I don't remember anything about the water cooler. What's the goss? You really don't remember? No. Okay. So yeah. when it was 20 of us or whatever, people started not feeling so well. And by the third week... Oh, my gosh. ..they realised that there was Jardia... Jadia in the water supply, and about a third of the people had to, oh. had to have poo in little cups and and take them to the doctor and and then take an intensive course of pills. So even then, it was a steaming pile of shit. <laughs> Holy moly! Jadia rolls. Yeah. On the next episode of the worst sitcom ever made, they all came to the same decision, and it was Melody Rules. And we all went, well, that's the stupidest one of them all. And this is probably the first inkling I got that things are not going to go well. The worst sitcom ever made is produced for RNZ by the Download Concept and Glenis Stewart. The studio engineer was Jeremy Veal. The coordinating producer for RNZ is Adam McCauley and the executive producer is Tim Watkin. If you want to catch up on this or other episodes of the worst sitcom ever made, go to the podcast page at RNZ or you can find it on most podcast apps like Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Radio Public and Google Play. And while you're there, you can check out other RNZ podcasts like the new series of Bang. The worst sitcom ever made is presented by me. Jeff Hull. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.